Hi, hello, and welcome to this episode of The Lives and Styles of Old Hollywood. Today, I will cover another actor, and that is James Stewart. James Stewart was the original everyday man of Hollywood, playing himself and his screen persona above everything else. And his famous drawl made him known on the screen as well as on the radio. Besides that, he was the highest ranking actor in American military history. So, let's start at the beginning, as always. James Maitland Stewart was born on May 20th in 1908 in Indiana, Pennsylvania. He was the firstborn son with two younger sisters. The family that had both Scottish and Scotch-Irish ancestry ran the J.M. Stewart & Company hardware store in the city and had done so for many generations. Hopes were that newborn James would later take over the reins of the company, as had done his elders before. James, or Jimmy as he was called, was rather shy and kept himself dreaming of going into aviation at one point in his life. During his pastime, he would assemble model airplanes and do mechanical drawings. When it comes to school, James Stewart was not the best of students. It was not due to his intelligence, but because he was rather a creative dreamer and sounded out and daydreamed during school. His low grades reflected this accordingly. At prep school, he was more interested in joining the extracurricular activities like the track team, the glee club, which, for those unfamiliar to this concept, was a musical or choir crew. Or he attended the literary society, the football team and the drama society, which resulted in his stage debut in the play The Wolves in 1928, when he was aged 20. He then attended Princeton and graduated in 1932 with a major in architecture. He actually was awarded a scholarship for graduate studies in architecture for his thesis on an airport terminal design. This was quite a different route his life could have taken. But Stuart was more attracted to continuing acting and joined University Players, which was a summerstock company. So, while being with the University Players the summer after graduation, Stuart met and formed a close friendship with Henry Fonda and his then-wife Margaret Sullivan. Actually, Stuart, newly divorced Fonda and fellow actor friends Joshua Logan and Myron McCormick would move together to New York after the summer. And this is when Stuart made his debut on Broadway together with Frank McCormick. He acted in several bit parts with his appearances lauded by the critics, but without any longer engagement or success in sight. Stuart actually was thinking about turning his back on acting and taking his architecture studies back up. Fortunately for us, this did not happen. And Stuart found a new belief in his acting abilities when he was offered the lead role in Yellow Jack. And yes, the play was lauded by the critics. Yet the public dismissed it and it folded after only 12 weeks. In 1934, Stuart made his movie debut as an unbuilt extra in the Sheep Howard comedy short and continued acting on stage. Sometimes his plays were successful and sometimes not. Nevertheless, in 1935, James Stewart signed a standard seven-year contract with MGM and made his Hollywood debut opposite Spencer Tracy in The Murder Man. His agent was none other than Leland Hayward, who also had attended Princeton. Hayward handled also Fred Astaire, Ernest Hemingway, Boris Karloff, Judy Garland, Ginger Rogers, Henry Fonda and William Wyler. As MGM did not see any leading man qualities in James Stewart, Hayward's strategy for him was to loan him to other studios instead. 
The first of such loans was to Universal Studios when his friend, romantic love interest and ex-wife of Henry Fonda, Margaret Sullivan, campaigned heavily for him to be cast opposite her in Next Time We Love. She was also the main influence behind his acting, coaching him extensively, rehearsing the role with him and creating an on-screen persona that would incorporate his lankiness, his awkwardness and his boyishness. And indeed, it paid off. The movie was a huge success and Stewart got back on the radar of studio bosses, critics and the public. The thing though, his next movies were a mixture of good and bad. They, so meaning Hayward, Stewart and MGM, hadn't found his persona yet, his kind of role. So in 1936, Stewart starred in eight movies altogether. The first being Next Time We Love and the last one After the Thin Man. For the latter, he received great praise, quoting Kate Camera on the New York Daily News. He demonstrates most effectively that he is something more than a musical comedy juvenile. Yet, in between those two successes were some failures, like Speed or Born to Dance, which proved that he was definitely not born to dance or sing. In 1937, Stewart continued his streak of failures with Seventh Heaven and Last Gangster. His role in Navy Blue and Gold, though, got him the best reviews of his career thus far, and entertainment media already picked him as a possibility for leading roles in stardom. So although everybody in Hollywood kind of knew that Stewart could make it, his studio MGM was hesitant to cast him in leading roles and continued to loan him to other studios, probably to try him out whilst making a sure profit. The movies Stewart made in this time between 1938 and 1940 were a wild mixture of critical and commercial failures and successes. Sometimes critical on commercial decisions on his performance were not going hand in hand. Some bombed at the box office, although critics loved them, and some were wildly successful with audiences, but critics hate them. And sometimes they all disliked the movie, and sometimes they all liked the movie. Examples of the winning successes were the two Frank Capra collaborations You Can't Take It With You and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, both opposite Gene Arthur. And Destry Rides Again was also a success, opposite Marlene Dietrich. And of course, in 1940, the Philadelphia story opposite Catherine Happen and Gary Grant was one of Stewart's major box office successes that is known and loved until today. His role as an intrusive, fast-talking reporter won James Stewart an Academy Award as Best Actor. Side note, Stewart's role in the movie was actually a supporting role, not a lead role. And Stewart's suspicion was that the Academy had actually granted him the award for his role in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington the year before. And fun fact, the award went straight to Stewart's dad who displayed it at his hardware store together with all other family accolades. His last movie before entering World War II was Sigfeld Girl opposite Judy Garland, Heidi Lamar and Lana Turner. Although a critical failure, it was one of the best performing box office successes that very year. After World War II, when Stewart returned to Hollywood in 1944, it was again Frank Capra who reached out and cast Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. This movie was so challenging for Stewart that he again considered retiring altogether from acting. The movie received five Academy Award nominations, yet was only a moderate box office success. 
Nevertheless, it is now regarded as a Christmas classic and has been named by the American Film Institute to be one of the 100 best American movies ever made. And the movie helped define James Stewart's on-screen persona. Actually, this movie was Stewart's personal favorite of all the movies that he's made during his career. And what followed the coming years was what actually had been going on for all of his career so far. Successes and failures just followed each other. There was no straight line up or down. Why he celebrated great successes with acclaimed film noir called Northside 777 or the romantic comedy You Gotta Stay Happy and The Stratton Story, the musical story On Our Merry Way was a big, big failure, as was Malaya and Magic Town. Other notable movies of the 1950s were The Jackpot, Harvey, which was an audience favorite about an eccentric whose best friend is a man-sized rabbit, and a role that Stewart had performed on stage some years before already. And just like It's a Wonderful Life, Harvey became largely popular only after several decades and formed an integral part of Stewart's image over time. A movie that I personally liked very much when I was younger was 1958's Bell, Book and Candle, with James Stewart leading opposite Kim Novak and Jack Lemmon in a supporting role. But as Stewart was already 50 years old at that time, he was miscast as Novak's love interest, who was only 25 years old. And both his performance as well as the movie as a whole received poor reviews. Nevertheless, I loved it. <laughs> Anatomy of a Murder was another successful movie of James Stewart and earned him several accolades, ranging from an Academy Award nomination, a BAFTA win, a Volpe Cup, a New York Film Critics Circle Award, up to a Producers Guild of America Award. James Stewart also became notable for collaborating with Alfred Hitchcock on several movies. First, there was Rope, which actually was not a very good movie. James Stewart's performance was not right. He was not right for the role and it translated to the screen. His second collaboration with Hitchcock, though, was a smash hit. It was Rear Window with Grace Kelly. And remember, it was based on the story of Robert Kappa and Ingrid Bergman. If you want to know more about this story, listen to my episode on Ingrid Bergman, where I tell a little bit more about their story. 1956, The Man Who Knew Too Much, opposite Doris Day, followed and was received well both at the box office and by critics. Where to Go in 1958 was the final movie Stewart and Hitchcock collaborated on. The controversial movie was neither commercial nor a critical success, but it developed into the greatest film ever made, as the Sight and Sound Critics poll in 2012 shows. As Stewart was already 50, as I said, and started to have silver hair, Hitchcock preferred to tend a black-haired Cary Grant over Stewart for his next movie, North by Northwest, for which Stewart had already been planned for. In the 1950s, Stewart also tried to reinvent himself in the Western genre, and his agent, Lou Wasserman, reinvented the Hollywood game. Wasserman did so by premiering the innovative deal with Universal that Stewart would not receive a fee, but instead a percentage of the profits, a model which would turn tables in Hollywood in the years after and contribute to the decay of the studio system. Also, Stewart had written in a contract that he would have a say in casting and hiring decisions. So this is the backdrop for the movie Winchester 73, which was filmed in 1950. The movie became a huge success, as did the following western Broken Arrow. 
James Stewart collaborated with director Mann on five more movies, including Band of the River, The Naked Spur and The Far Country. All of these collaborations were widely successful and they led the groundwork for more realistic and way crittier westerns than those filmed before. They also helped define a different screen persona for James Stewart, one that was tough and vengeful. After collaborating with Mann on numerous westerns, he turned to John Ford in the 1960s to collaborate on several successful movies. One of them was The Man Who Shot Liberty Wellens in 1962, which went on to become a critical favorite over time. It was shot in a black and white film noir style. Also in the 1960s, Stewart teamed up with friend Henry Fonda and John Wayne in How the West Was Won, which went on to win three Academy Awards and was a huge box office success. Other westerns like Cheyenne Autumn, The Rare Breed, Fire Creek and The Cheyenne Social Club followed. Actually, James Stewart made such a mark on the western genre that he was inducted into the Hall of Great Western Performers at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City in 1972. Stewart actually continued his Western success on the radio in the Western radio show The Six Shooter, which aired between 1953 and 1954. His very particular way of speaking, his drawl, made him recognizable on the medium, and he had already starred in several other radio dramas during his performing career. With the 1950s coming to an end, the commercially most successful years of Stewart's career also drew to a close. During the 1960s, he released only a couple of movies of moderate success or even failure, as well as a number of westerns, as stated already. And the 1970s were marked by James Stewart's appearances on TV. He starred in the sitcom The Jimmy Stewart Show, in which he played a college professor whose adult son moves back home with the family. Stewart disliked the amount of work that the television show demanded and was apparently relieved when it folded after only one season. This did not prevent him from signing up for another series, which would be 1973's Hawkins, which was basically a serialized version of Anatomy of a Murder, and Stewart won a Golden Globe for his performance. But this one as well was cancelled after only one season. One possible reason, despite the great critical praise, the series rotated with Shaft, and that was quite explosive material back then, so there was no loyal following for that particular time slot. Until Stewart's semi-retirement from acting in the 1980s, he appeared in several supporting roles, for example in John Wayne's final movie The Shootist, in Airport 77 with Jack Lemmon and The Big Sleep with Robert Mitchum. Stewart fulfilled his lifelong dream to conduct the Mormon Tabernacle Choir in his Christmas movie Kruger's Christmas in 1980. And, very special to me, he had a small role in the miniseries North and South in 1986, which was for years my favorite thing to watch. When I was younger, this series would be shown each Christmas on TV and I watched it religiously every time. And afterwards, I would walk around the house with my duvet belted around my waist because I found the dresses so very wonderful. And probably this is also why I went into fashion design, because I wanted to get those dresses back. So, just a side note about myself. James Stewart concluded his career with voice work. For example, in an American tale, Fievel Goes West, and as the voice for Campbell's Soup's advertisements. During the 1960s, Stewart received the Cecil B. The Mill Award for his life's work, as well as the Screen Actors Guild Life Achievement Award. 
and the Drama Desk Award for his reprisal of the role of Harvey on Broadway in 1970, when he was 62 years old. The American Film Institute Award in 1980 followed, a Silver Bear in 1982 and an Honorary Academy Award in 1985. So, as I said before, James Stewart was in the military. He was actually the first major movie star to enlist in the US Army to fight in World War II. Basically, it was kind of a family tradition, with both grandfathers of his having fought in the Civil War and his father serving the Spanish-American War. At 33 years old, he was already an experienced pilot at that time and received a commission as a second lieutenant on January 1, 1942. From that time onwards, he would not appear in any commercial movies, despite being under contract by MGM. He did appear, though, for publicity reasons for the Army Air Forces in both radio and movies. His documentary, Winning Your Wings, designed to recruit airmen, was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary in 1942. During his time in the military, he first trained cadets and pilots for about a year, and then he got sent to England and Europe for several missions. Stewart actually is one of very few Americans to ever rise from private colonel in only four short years. He was awarded a distinguished flying cross, the French Croix de Guerre with palm and the Air Medal with three oak leaf clusters. In 1945, James Stewart returned to America, but he stayed in the military, played a role in reserve, was one of the 12 founders of the Air Force Association and served during active duty periods with the Strategic Air Command, even completing transition training as a pilot on the B-47 and B-52. When James Stewart was promoted to general in 1959, he became the highest-ranking actor in American military history. He retired from the military only in 1968 and received the United States Air Force Distinguished Service Medal. So this is quite another successful career that he had next to his Hollywood career. Quite impressive, I think. James Stewart died at the age of 89 on July 2nd, 1997 from a stroke resulting from a pulmonary embolism. His funeral was attended by many of his friends and co-workers like June Allen, Bob Hope, Lou Wasserman, Nancy Reagan, Esther Williams and Carol Burnett. So, this was the professional life of James Stewart. And as always, I want to shed a light on his private life. What about the relationships and friendships and miscellaneous things that we know about him? So, James Stewart had been called the Great American Bachelor by gossip columnist Hedda Hopper because he stayed unmarried right up to his 40s. But there were many women he had an affair or relationship with. First, there was Margaret Sullivan. So Margaret Sullivan was Henry Fonda's first wife and she was the first real love of James Stewart. But they never had an affair or a relationship because apparently Stewart never confessed his love for her and she ended up marrying his manager Leland Hayward instead. But they remained great friends for life and as I said before, she was a very great influence on his life. Next, James Stewart got introduced to Ginger Rogers by none other than his friend Henry Fonda and Stewart and Rogers had a relationship in 1935. Then he dated Norma Shearer during their work on The Shopborn Angel. Afterwards, Stewart dated Loretta Young and they got along quite well, but they called it quits because Stewart did not want to settle down whilst Loretta was all for it. 
Then, during the filming of Destry Rides Again, Stuart had an affair with then-married Marlene Dietrich and even got her pregnant. But the pregnancy ended in abortion and Stuart called off the relationship when filming wrapped. James Stewart also dated Olivia de Havilland in the late 1930s and early 1940s and apparently also proposed marriage to her, but she refused, saying that he was not ready for it. In 1942, while serving in the military, Stewart met singer Dinah Shore at the Hollywood Canteen and started an affair with her. Apparently, they even were very close to getting married in Las Vegas in 1943, but Stewart called it off right before in the car. And then he had a relationship with Myrna Dell while filming The Stratton Story in 1949. So there were lots of affairs before Stuart met Gloria Hattrick McLean, his wife. Gloria and James Stuart met in 1947 at the Christmas party of a befriended actor. Funnily, Stuart apparently crashed the party, got drunk and left a less than stellar impression on Gloria. The next year, Gary Cooper and his wife invited them both to a dinner party and afterwards they started dating and got married in 1949. McLean actually had previously been married to Edward Beale McLean Jr., who happened to be the son and heir to Evelyn Walsh McLean. And that name probably doesn't ring a bell, but maybe if I tell you that it was she who owned the Hope Diamond as well as Star of the East, two of the most famous diamonds in the world. That was just a side note. <laughs> Gloria brought two sons into the marriage, which Stuart adopted, and two years into the marriage, they had twin girls. These two, James and Gloria, stayed married until Gloria died from lung cancer in 1994. James Stuart was a very private person, but he had some very close friends. His closest friend was Henry Fonda, with a friendship spanning over 50 years. And it all began during their stint at stock company Universal Players in a shared flat in New York. Other notable friends included Leland Howard, his manager and husband of his longtime love interest, Margaret Sullivan, director John Ford, Billy Crady, who discovered him, and Gary Cooper. James Stewart is one of the great examples that shows that style is not only close, it's facial mimics and voice. His particular troll, his boyishness, his upright character all played into his perceived style and character. According to his biographer, he was an instinctive and natural actor, totally at ease in front of the camera, although being a shy person. James Stewart was known for his signature pauses, or stammered pauses as some called them. It was his way to keep attention and build suspense, and that was definitely his style. There are also some miscellaneous parts that didn't fit into any of this, so I just compiled them and let you in on it. Say, James Stewart loved to play the accordion. <laughs> when he was still a kid, his father allowed a customer to pay with an accordion, and Jimmy would learn to play the instrument all by himself and play it all through his life and would have it with him also during filming of movies. Meditation app Calm recreated via AI James Stewart's voice and would have the voice record an original story, It's a Wonderful Sleep Story, and that was done with consent by the Stewart family. And I have to admit, I still have to listen to it. Another very notable thing is that James Stewart was actually a multi-millionaire, but not only because of his acting success, but also because he invested and diversified. He had invested in real estate and oil wells and in the charter plane company Southwest Airways, and he was a member on several major corporate boards. 
He was also an early investor in Thunderbird Field, a pilot training school in Glendale, Arizona. And Stewart was a scout and supported Boy Scouts of America throughout his life. Since 2003, the James M. Stewart Good Citizenship Award is awarded to Boy Scouts. And as probably you realized during this episode, James Stewart was obsessed with aviation. From an early age onward, he built model planes. And in later years, even together with close friend Henry Fonda. And he had very great admiration for Charles Lindbergh and was delighted to depict his hero. He was a trained pilot, had a commercial license, had part ownership of Southwest Airways and a pilot training base. This was his second life next to Hollywood and his military career. He was a very rounded personality who had lots of experience and was not solely dialed in on one thing. And the last miscellaneous thing that I found is that film scholar Andrew Series called him the most complete actor personality in all of American cinema, which I thought was a wonderful way to close this episode on James Stewart. So there are three things that I learned from James Stewart. First, your path will never be linear or foreseeable. There is no straight line to success. There are up and downs, reroutes and detours. This is the thing I will remember most about James Stewart, that there is not like this one straight line from A to B. His film success was never straight. He had like such a wild mixture of failures and successes liked by critics, disliked by audiences, vice versa. So it was really very interesting to read about it because with some other actors, there's like this one season during their career where everything is a success or everything is a failure. But with James Stewart, it just is a mixture. And also, he was not so focused on it. He also had his military career. He also had his investments. So there were a lot of things going on. I think this is part of his success because he was not so focused on that very thing, but focused on what was important to him. And that is also a lesson from James Stewart. Stand up for what is right and what feels right. James Stewart did this always in his movies, no matter his character. He was the one leaning towards the right thing to do. And in his personal life, Stuart also had standards and ideals that he followed through. Serving in the military was probably just one example of this. Another thing I learned is you don't have to have many friends, but you need close friends. And even if there's like only one or two friends that stay with you for life, that is more important than having hundreds of acquaintances or like loose friends who are not really the ones you trust and that you want to have by your side when you're down in the dumps. James Stewart, who was a very private and very shy person and didn't want to be with everyone, chose his friends and was loyal to them and stayed with them. So this is the episode on James Stewart. I probably have to rewatch some of his early movies when he was younger because I have to say I haven't seen Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and I really am intrigued to do so. So if you have already watched it, let me know what you thought or if there's any other Stuart film that you would like to recommend. And yeah, maybe you learned a thing or two from this episode. I hope so. And I can't wait to talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.